when we return to in-person worship and that song is sung, <laughs> we'll have to decompress after a little bit. <laughs> the, the great joy of uh, the anticipation of seeing the face of our Savior uh, face to face uh, when our faith uh, turns to sight and we're anticipating that with uh, joy and we sing about it now because we know it's going to be true in our experience. Judges chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me in your copy of the Word of God, is where, that is where we're drawing our message for this morning uh, for our edification. Judges chapter 6 and our focal point are verses 25 through 40 in the Gideon narrative. I am not going to read all of the verses. Uh, I think that would be good, but it'll take a little too long, so I'll just read a portion of the text from which we'll speak here momentarily. Beginning at verse 25, hear the word of the Lord. Now on the same night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut, it, cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And behold, an altar, build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. And take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And behold, he was too afraid of his father's household. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. I think I said behold twice, didn't I? Uh, that, those, that word is lodged in my brain. Uh, this morning, um, the subject for these verses and the rest in our text, the kind of person God can use. Do understand that modern day believers share in common with believers who live prior to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Among these are obedience to the Lord, the work of the Holy Spirit, and trusting in the Lord, or acting by faith. These three realities are found in the life of Gideon, and they were necessary components for his service uh, to Yahweh. And they are essential to our service to him today. These three elements, in fact, are found in the kind of person that God uses. Now, there are three episodes that we're going to look at this morning, three episodes in Gideon's life, and each of them exhibit the aforementioned components for spiritual usefulness. The first one uh, we find, uh, we find it in the text that I just read. That's our first point, and it is this, a decisive commitment. You'll recall the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, had called and commissioned Gideon to be the human agent for the deliverance of Israel from Midian oppression. In the verses before us, verses 25 through 32, we see the first element that is resident in one who is used by God in his service to accomplish his will. It is a commitment to his will. And God's will, you do understand, is paramount. And the way commitment is expressed is obedience. Obedience. 
God's will for Gideon was to eliminate the altar of Baal and erect an altar to the Lord. For Gideon to do this took an act of decisive commitment. Before Yahweh would rid Israel of its oppression by Midian, he would rid them of their idolatry and bring them back to himself. Just a parenthetical note, do understand that God's action in the life of his people when it seems on the surface is purely adverse, it is not that. It is God's working to bring apostatizing, wayward people back to himself. His chastenings are always for our good. Therefore, our spiritual good, it is to correct something in us, is to take us from where we are, where we shouldn't be, to where we need to be. And God, in his love for his covenantal people, Israel, he would work to deliver them from their idolatry and bring them back to the true worship that belongs to him. Midian, therefore, wasn't uh, Israel's problem ultimately, but it was their problems with God. Their relationship with him was out of whack. It's always the case, no matter what it is, the root problem is spiritual. And God deals with it. Yahweh demanded exclusive devotion to himself as revealed in Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That is the first commandment. No other gods. Starts right there. That commandment was binding on the covenant people, Israel, and it is binding on us as well. Our allegiance is to be first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing is to supplant his place in our life. Nothing is to be in competition with him. Nothing is to be ahead of him, above him. He is to be number one. His place is a place of supremacy in the life of the child of God. Now, this decisive commitment that Gideon is going to make, you can see in the text again, it says, as the Lord spoke to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. This hits home for Gideon. He is to act in Yahweh's interest, not his father's. Can't you imagine what was perhaps going through Gideon's mind as he thought, oh, this is a command from the Lord. I have got to do the very thing that my father holds dear. I've got to pull down that which is in opposition to God, but is held dearly by my father. Here's something we have to keep in mind. God's honor, God's will, God and obedience to him must have precedence in our life over even family members when there's a conflict between the two. God's always first. Christ is always first. And we see here the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, tells Gideon, this is what you must do. First things first, before I, before I use you to deliver the, your nation from Midianite oppression, I am going to deliver you from the oppression of idolatry. And that'll even mean in your own backyard. Now I'm going to tell you something. Gideon's obedience demonstrated clearly 
his commitment to the Lord. Notice something else in verse 25. Um, it says a second bull, seven years old. Um, the seven-year-old bull's lifespan was coextensive with the time of Midian's oppression. Remember back in verse 1 of Judges 6, it says, The Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. I don't think that's just coincidence that that, that bull was seven years old. What Gideon was going to do, he's going to use that seven-year-old bull and pull down the altar of Baal. What this suggests to us is that with the pulling down of the altar to Baal, the oppression was in effect over. It was to last seven years, and that's it. it the text tells us it was seven years. A seven-year-old bull pulled down the altar, the idolatry would cease, and God would deliver his people. Getting rid of the spiritual problem, then deliverance can come. Verse 26, there's to be an altar built to the Lord. Remove the altar to Baal and build an altar to the Lord, and there is to be a burnt offering upon it, um, meaning a sacrifice to the Lord. It means a dedication to the Lord. That new altar would be dedicated then to the worship of the Lord. There would be a change, a profound and fundamental change. No longer would there be an uh, altar and worship to Baal, but there would be a restoration of the worship of Yahweh what God wants. Perhaps uh, that we could apply it like this. That's the way it ought to be with us. If, there's, if, if there is some idol in your heart, pull it down. If there's something in your heart, your life that's keeping you from being or uh, doing what God wants, it's some idol that you are hiding in your heart. It occupies your affection. It Tear it down. Remove it. That's what God required of Gideon for his people. Gideon, by his own actions, demonstrated his submission to the authority of the Lord and his commitment to him. Now, I think it's interesting that Gideon uh, here in verse 27, he takes 10 of his servants and notice verse 27, did as the Lord had spoken to him. Obedience. But notice something else. Because he's too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. Gideon was no fool. He was not unaware of the problematic nature <laughs> of doing what Yahweh commanded him to do. He understood clearly that he would um, be acting against his dad and his Abizarite clan. He understood that. I suppose we could say sometimes uh, to obey the Lord is hard. Because we're going against the grain. We're going against the culture. We're going against others. We know where they stand and where we stand is on the opposite end of the spectrum. 
We stand for Christ, they stand for Satan. Uh, we're in the world, but not of it, and they're in the world and of it. And so to obey Christ can present a real problem for us, not only in the family, but among people we know, friends, co-workers, associates, all of that. It can be, we understand that. We don't obey the Lord in a vacuum. And Gideon certainly didn't. That's why he did it at night. It says the text he was afraid. Now I'm going to tell you something. Obeying the Lord does not mean he's going to relieve you of your fear. Uh, there's somebody that we all know and appreciate and love who had fear too. The Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he told them in his initial letter when he first came to Philippi, uh, excuse me, Corinth, that he came with fear and trembling. He came to that city in fear and trembling, going to preach the gospel. Paul was afraid. That tells me, hey, the apostle Paul can have fear and trembling? Nah. I'm all right with it. I love what Dale Ralph Davis says here about this. Quote about Gideon. Quote, evidently obedience was essential and heroism optional. That, that's good, isn't it? God doesn't say, now obey me, but don't be afraid. You say, how do I know that it was okay? Well, simple. You don't find anywhere in the text where Yahweh reprimanded Gideon. He didn't tell him to do it in the daytime. He said, pull it down. Gideon, using the better part of virtue, prudence, I guess, <laughs> said, let's do this thing under the cover of darkness. Because, you know, after all, it's going to be exposed. And he did so. That was a commitment he made. Now, of course, you know this wouldn't sit well with the uh, Baal worshipers. Um, they arose, verse 28, the men of the city, you know, they get up and um, they're going to the altar there so they could have their devotions. And as Ralph Davis says, Dale Ralph Davis said, they were drinking their warm goat milk and say, <laughs> sauntered down to where the altar was, and they discovered it was destroyed. Along with Asherah, the fertility god, the bowl, all of that's gone. And they wondered, who did this thing? Verse 29, and they acquired, and they found out it was Gideon. We don't know how they found out. Perhaps one of Gideon's ten servants said, ah, Gideon did it. I was there. We don't know. It could have been somebody uh who saw them in the night, said, what are you doing, Gideon? Oh, he's tearing down Baal's altar. My, my, my. But they discovered it. And you notice something in verse 30. They say, bring out your son to Joash, Gideon's father, that he may die. They want him to die. Because he did that. He wanted to terminate his life. 
They wanted to murder him. Interestingly, this was, uh, you recall, um, it was uh, part of Joash's, it was, he, he was the one who had all of this paraphernalia for idolatry around his home. Joash was the local Baal shrine keeper. We could say it was in his backyard. But notice something. It was Joash in verse 31 who defends his son, but he doesn't defend him on the basis of their father-son relationship. Rather, on the basis of theologic. T-H-E-O-L-O-G-I-C. Theologic. What I mean? God logic. Think about it. Verse 31a, will you contend for Baal or will you deliver him? Let's put it like this. If Baal really is a God, he does not need you to defend him. If he cannot defend himself, he is not worthy of worship. A God who cannot take care of himself, defend himself against a mere mortal, does not deserve the worship of anyone. For the reality, he's not a God. 31b. Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by mourning. Um, plead, contend for him. In other words, if Baal is all that, if he indeed is a god, let Baal put the culprit to death. Well, we all know what happened. That didn't happen. Gideon wasn't put to death because Baal couldn't do it. Then in verse 32, on that day, Joash, Baal, uh, Gideon's father named him Jerubel. That is to say, let Baal contend with him because he has torn down his altar. Jerubel means let Baal contend. It came to mean Baal fighter or Baal conqueror. Indeed he did. Now, let me apply this for a moment. Gideon could not have known that obedience to the Lord would yield such a change in his own father's life. And we cannot know how our commitment to Christ will positively influence others for him. You can't know that. Your responsibility, just do it. You remember a few decades ago, the Greyhound Bus Company advertised their service with the tagline, Go Greyhound and leave the driving to us. I think we can adapt that line and of advertisement and apply it this way. Go in obedience to Jesus and leave the results with him. That's how you do it. You don't know how God's going to use your obedience. That's not for us to worry about. Our job is simply to do it and let him take care of it. So the kind of person that God uses is one who makes a decisive commitment. That commitment being, I'm going to do, Lord, what you want me to do. I have decided. 
going to do it. Even when it is difficult, when it's apparent that there are inherent risks, I'm going to do what you want me to do. That's the kind of person God can use. That's one component. Another is this, a supernatural endowment. A supernatural endowment. First 33 through 35. You'll notice here this text. The Midianites, now they bring along the Amalekites and the sons of these. They assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Same song, same old story. This is the eighth incursion into Israel. They came as they did the previous seven years. No doubt they uh, arrived there thinking, well, easy pickings. We've done it seven years previously. We're going to do it one more year. You know what? They're, they're like a bully who knows he can take whatever he wants with no effective resistance. That's how bullies act, you know? I guess we've all uh, experienced bullies, right? <laughs> but unknown to them, however, was that Yahweh was at work. They, they didn't know what they were getting ready to run into. <laughs> God had uh, a man. He had addressed idolatry. He has a man that he can use named Gideon. And so when they made their incursion into Jewish territory, notice what happens. Verse 34. So the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and the Beziorites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali and they came up to meet them. So the Spirit of God came upon Gideon. The enemies came into their territory, and the Spirit of God came upon Gideon. In thir verse 34, literally, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, says this, the Spirit clothed himself with Gideon. To put it differently, the Spirit put on Gideon, like I put on this suit coat this morning. The words convey a picture of the Holy Spirit, get this, wearing Gideon, like a man wears clothing. Think about this. This is, why this is, this is wonderful. Uh, the picture of this place here for us, clothing moves with the human body. That's an obvious thing, isn't it? Uh, clothing doesn't resist, generally speaking. <laughs> it just moves with the human body. So what this tells us is the Holy Spirit wearing Gideon had total possession of him, had total control of him. And with that control, with that power, with all of that going on with Gideon, then Gideon blew his chauffeur or trumpet and mustered an army. And I read the text. And they came. He was their leader. And he was becoming what the Lord Jesus, the angel of the Lord, said he would be come. In verse 12 of Judges 6. Oh, 
valiant warrior. Think about it. Gideon now is General Gideon. He's the leader of an army. <laughs> the endowment of the Holy Spirit. God can use him now. That's the second one. It is when a person is controlled by the Holy Spirit, he or she can be used by God. When you have this, this supernatural element in your life, God can use you. Now, let, let's, let's expand upon this thinking a little bit and apply it uh, to believers. All Christians are different in temperament. We all have different gifts and different places of service in the body of Christ. But all Christians need the same spirit to function effectively for Christ. Think of it this way. In a typical home, your home, you have electrical, electrically powered devices. You have a computer or, or one or two. You have a microwave, a TV, a radio, Whatever. And you can plug them into the same electrical outlet and they will function. But until they are plugged in, they are utterly powerless. You know what it's like when the power goes out and you think you're going <laughs> to go do something like the coffee. Oh, no electricity. They have to be plugged in. We have to be plugged in. The Holy Spirit he uses us. Clothing, for example, clothes are passive. We human beings, we can resist the Holy Spirit. In fact, we can quench him. But we are to be under his control. That is a clear command in Ephesians 5.18. We're to be filled. Keep on being filled is what the terminology of the grammar says. To be controlled by him. That is to be our regular way of life. How is this done? Colossians 3.16 uses the same language as Ephesians 5.19, the result of being spirit-filled. Same words. In the Colossian passage, it is not the Holy Spirit who produces the result, but it's the Word of God. So what that tells us is this. Uh, the Word of God produces the same effect that the Holy Spirit does. The point is transparent. Being spirit-filled is being obedient to the Word of God. It's being controlled by the word. It's being controlled by the word in, in, in our words, in our thoughts, and in our deeds. Being spirit-filled is equated with being obedient to the word of God. It is not some kind of mystical zap you get. It is your submission to the authority of God's word. It's when you're spirit-filled. It's what it means. Compare the parallel passages, and it's obvious. The Holy Spirit, Ephesians 3, 16, you recall, he is the one who strengthens us in our inner man. He does that. That's why Paul prayed for that, because we need that, and he provides that. And so a person who's under the control of the Holy Spirit is a person that God can use a person who has made a decisive commitment and obedience to him is a person that God can use. The third element here uh, about the kind of person that God can use 
is a fragile faith. That may seem like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> How can that be in line here? Fragile faith? We see verses 36 through 40. Get this. Yahweh uses people with obvious weakness. There is no believer without a weakness. Our weaknesses, two, three, a four. If God did not use people with a weakness, there would be no one for him to use. Think about it. That's why the employment line is long. God will use them because there are a lot of weak people. Gideon's weakness was his weak faith. This is an amazing thing. He had just experienced the Spirit's power. He mustered an army. But yet, he says in verse 36 of Judges 6, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. Let's just unpack this for a moment. The matter of the fleece was an example of Gideon's weak faith. Now, here's some important points I want to get across to us. He did not use the test of the fleece to discover the will of God. People, you know what they do? They say, well, I don't know who I should marry or what school I need to go to, so I'm going to put out a fleece. And they draw from this text as their example. Uh, those people want to know the will of God. I'm going to tell you something. Gideon, you just read it. He already knew the will of God. He wasn't trying to discover the will of God. It was clear to him in verses 14 through 16 of Judges 6. He was told by the angel of the Lord what the will of God was for his life. And in verse 36, you'll see it. If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, how much clearer can that be? Ray Charles said, I can see it. <laughs> it's clear. Let me help you in interpreting Scripture. Believers, this text is descriptive, not prescriptive. That's an important thing to understand. When I say it is descriptive and not prescriptive, it means this. This text about the fleece is not a prescription for how to find God's will. He doesn't prescribe for us, this is how you know what my will is. It simply describes how Gideon sought to confirm God's word, the already known will of God. That's what this text is, is saying. There, there are some things that we already know in the word of God. It's the will of God. You can find them throughout the Bible. But don't use this verse as a means of obtaining that which you don't know, those things I mentioned earlier. Here's the problem with Gideon. He had weak faith. 
It was his inability to take God at his word. Such is weak faith. I mean, you go through the narrative and, and you see up to this point the things that the Lord has done. It points to, I, I'm going to do it. But this man still struggled. We have to take Jesus at his word, don't we? And I think there's a song that even suggests we ask for grace to trust him more. Remember those lyrics? Gideon then was, and using the fleece was like the man in Mark 9, 24, who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now I'm going to tell you what's wonderful about this. <laughs> you will not find in this text, all the way through verse 40, that God disqualified Gideon from his service because he had weak faith. No. You know what our God did? He condescended in compassion and with patience to confirm his word to weak in the faith Gideon. Isn't that good? God is like that toward us. One man suggests that um, Gideon was a slow learner. And this man who said that said, he too is a slow learner. Are we not all slow learners in this business? Well, God, yeah, I know. But God is patient. He'll stoop to meet us at the point of our need as he sought to bolster the fragile faith of Gideon. What's remarkable? Two miracles. Two miracles. We see the first one. He wanted it uh, to do, to be on the fleece only in verse 37. It happened just as he requested God did it. And the next morning he squeezed the fleece and drained the water. And Gideon thought, wait, 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 wait. Oh, no. Uh, I ain't ready yet. Verse 39, then God said, uh, then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. <laughs> he, he knew he was, um, he should have gone and tr trusted the Lord. But God didn't say, I'm angry with you. He listened. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece. And let there be dew all around on the ground. C.J. Goslinger said this, the second miracle is remarkable in that it is the nature of fleece to absorb moisture. Yet it is dry and the ground surrounding it is wet. This demonstrates God's power to do whatever seems impossible to men even more clearly. God in his graciousness exhibited his power in a profound way for weak in the faith Gideon. Certainly that miracle would bolster Gideon's faith. And he, God, is not finished with helping this 
man with weak faith. That's encouraging for us, I hope. So I've already indicated because we're like that many times. As I conclude uh, this message, yesterday I came across the, um, the words of the English Standard Version translations, translation, commi- uh, translation Committee. They wrote these words about their translations, the Oversight Committee. They said this, quote, We know that no Bible translation is perfect or final, but we also know that God uses imperfect and inadequate things to his honor and praise. So to our triune God and to his people, we offer what we have done with our prayers that it may prove useful. And with ongoing wonder that God should ever have entrusted to us so momentous a task. End of quote. Scholars. Translating from the Hebrew and Aramaic and the Old Testament to Greek and New Testament. And they say, oh, it is not perfect. May God use it. It has been said. Perhaps you've heard it, that God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. He can use sticks like us as he used a stick like Gideon. Imperfect and inadequate in ourselves, but who obey him, who allow him to control them, and who will trust him. God use that person. Why does he do it? To his praise, honor, and glory of his name. Hmm. What magnifies his grace and power and glory greater than looking at people like us with all our weaknesses? And he uses it to accomplish momentous things then who gets the praise and glory? He does. Praise his name. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we uh, stand in awe of your greatness as we look at what we are and who you are. May we find ourselves um, taking these truths to heart even more deeply and allow them to direct our lives. And thank you for taking weak human beings whom you've redeemed and using them in your service, ultimately for your praise and glory. These things I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If you're not a Christian, God can take you where you are, save you, cleanse you, and use you in his service. Trust him today. The Savior who died, was buried, and raised from the dead, who lives triumphantly, who has all power in heaven and earth in his hands, will meet your need for salvation. Turn to him today. We look forward to seeing you again next Lord's Day Sunday as we unfold again the word of the living God. God bless you, and until then,
May his grace and peace be with you.